It's been a while. I know I haven't uploaded a new episode in over a month, but I've been fucking busy. <sighs> okay, I know it seems like I haven't put up a new episode in a long time, but that is not totally true. I was working on this episode, I recorded it, I was editing it, and then I decided that it was awful, and so was every episode I'd uploaded prior. So I decided that while I didn't have a totally established audience yet, I'd do a soft relaunch of the podcast. I changed the cover art, I re-recorded the previous episodes, I re-edited them, I reformatted them, they pretty much have the same information in all of them, so if you did listen to the older versions, you don't need to listen to them again, you didn't miss anything. If this is your first episode of the podcast, though, I will say both of you to start with one that literally has part two in the title, but welcome! This is Medusini, my name is Jasmine, and I am going to finally continue where I left off a month ago and resume this very long, longer than it needs to be, project of ranking every Britney Spears song from worst to best. That's what I wrote in the title at least, but if you did listen to the first part of the series, and I recommend you do, you'll know that the qualifications for how I'm ranking these songs are a little more complicated than that. Regardless, we left off last time at number 101, today we're starting at number 100, and next week we'll drag a whole episode out just to do the top 30, which means we've got a hefty proportion to get through today, so let's just fucking go. Number 100 is... Shattered Glass! That was really anticlimactic. I'm sorry. I feel like since this is the first song of the episode, I should start with some commentary to get us into the vibe for how the rest of this is gonna go. But... Number 99, a song I definitely have some stuff to say about. SMS Bangers by Miley Cyrus featuring Britney Spears. Flying high up on my bird, I got phobia, I slick cutter, iron down my purse, where the dollars at. I let her know the rules do on the first. They can call a hearse, cause if there's any violation, I go off with that. I said in the last episode that to keep things simple, I decided to only include what I could access on US Spotify and excluded any remixes that didn't receive music videos so I could keep the list at a reasonable length. When I first started working on the list, I considered for a bit if I even wanted to include collaborations in which Britney wasn't the primary artist, like this song with Miley or Will I Am Scream and Shout, etc. I obviously decided to include them, and it wasn't a hard choice because Britney hasn't really done that many collabs throughout her career. I mean, she's been in the industry for over 20 years now and has only been featured on a handful of other artists' songs. 
Let's consider, though, that at this point, Britney spent the majority of her professional career within a conservatorship where her ability to even see other people was extremely limited, as everyone around her had to be approved to be in Britney's company by her father. There are many horrifying reports regarding Britney's social isolation. The worst aspect of that is obviously the toll that must have taken on her well-being and her ability to establish and maintain relationships with others. But as we're talking about her work, I have to wonder if, without the conservatorship, we might have gotten more music from Britney that involved other artists she may have been interested in working with. From a selfish standpoint as a fan, I'm bummed thinking about the potential collabs we could have gotten had Britney been able to freely associate with whomever she wanted, rather than just the people her team approved of. But from a more empathetic standpoint as well, I'm sad to acknowledge that Britney possibly wasn't able to explore new avenues with any artist she admired. She has the kind of legacy and impact that she should have been able to spend the last 14 years collaborating with literally anyone she wanted to. Who the fuck would turn down an opportunity to work with THE Britney Spears? She earned the right to pull any string she felt like pulling, but that goddamn team of hers worked under the conservatorship that kept Britney attached to their own strings like a literal pop industry puppet. A real life Ashley O. Ah! Oh my god, get that fucking cable out of my ass! Holy shit! It's like a wire anger in my butt. Just pull take it, it out! Pull out. the fuck out! Oh. Ah. Ah, god, that's a relief. The few collabs Britney did do with other artists during her conservatorship seem to have been tightly controlled. I'm not sure how closely Will I Am and Britney work together, considering Britney Jean was such a rushed project. Britney's verse on Rihanna's track probably didn't involve much in-person communication since Brit was only a feature on a remix for a song that was already finished. And Iggy Azalea spoke in 2021 about the strange conditions she noticed working with Britney in 2015, including the NDA she was forced to sign minutes before the two performed on stage together, before she'd even had time to read it. The fact that Britney did this song with Miley Cyrus in 2013 is almost shocking given Britney's frequent isolation from other stars along with Miley's general outspokenness. If Miley had seen something sus, Team Khan would be silly to assume she'd never say something about it publicly. Though she's never come out with any stories from her time with Britney, who's to say what she saw or how closely the two worked, Miley was one of the first celebrities to vocalize support for the Free Britney movement. It's not so surprising, however, that Miley and Britney teamed up in 2013, since that was the year that Miley hired Larry Rudolph as her manager. Larry Rudolph is a former entertainment lawyer who became Britney's manager at the very start of her career when she was still a teenager. He worked closely with Britney and cultivated a relationship with her family. Let it be noted that Britney fired Larry in 2007 after he convinced her to check into a rehab facility despite her claim that she didn't have any substance abuse problems at the time. Also, like on the USA Today, because I always believe everything you read. But it said that, you know, like, I was drinking all the time. And, like, it was sick, right? 
It was so true. I mean, oh my God, it was so bright. And like my management totally knew what they were doing when they sent me to rehab. <laughs> so bright, you know. Britney's family then made a public statement apologizing to Larry Rudolph, with Jamie Spears writing an email to Page Six saying, quote, When Larry Rudolph talked Britney into going into rehab, he was doing what her mother, father, and team of professionals with over 100 years of experience knew needed to be done. She was out of control. Larry was the one chosen by her team to roll up his sleeves and deliver the message to save her life. The Spears family would like to publicly apologize to Larry for our daughter's statements about him over the past few weeks. Unfortunately, she blames him and her family for where she is at today with her kids and career. Larry has always been there for Brittany. For this, we will be forever grateful to him. Larry was rehired as Brittany's manager only after Jamie was made her conservator. He later blamed Britney's 2007 mental health crisis on her having too much time on her hands, telling the LA Times in 2008, quote, She likes to work. In many ways, she's defined by her career. Getting her career where she wants it to be now is a big part of who she is, unquote. This statement reminds me a bit of when Jamie, according to Lynn Spears, said Britney is, quote, like a racehorse and should be treated like one, unquote. Larry Rudolph resigned as Britney's manager in 2021, and though she hasn't spoken about him or his actions at length, Britney has indicated that Larry, along with other members of her professional team, played a role in maintaining her conservatorship status quo. It's not controversial to say that many people on Britney's team benefited from her captivity, likely including her manager. Of the few collaborations Britney did during her conservatorship, three of them involved other artists that Larry Rudolph managed, those being Miley, Will I Am, and the Backstreet Boys. They were featured on a song called Matches that I mentioned last episode, released while Britney was on a work strike. For the most part, an artist collaborating with people they have a professional connection to is not suspicious or abnormal, and it might not have been anything sus in Britney's case either. But with the circumstances, it's hard to evaluate how much say Britney had in her collaborators, or if she had the freedom to venture far outside the boundaries of people members of her team had financial interest in supporting. I know Free Britney folks have found many instances of Brit's social media accounts laying praise onto other public figures her management happened to have associations with, while Britney was clearly not in control of her accounts. So that's something to consider. Would this collab with Miley have been able to happen if Miley wasn't also a client of Larry's? Possibly not, but I'm glad it happened nonetheless. Miley's been referencing Britney and her iconography within her own work for years, and she's been vocal about her childhood idolization of Britney. I feel like she's just someone that's such an, such an idol, and she's someone that kind of, she was like, the way fans think about me now, that was me with her when I was a kid. You know, all I want to do was go see her concert. Her similarities to Britney don't end with the intensity of their fan bases. Both singers began their careers as children working on the Disney Channel. The infrastructure for grooming a Disney Channel actress into a bona fide pop star wasn't quite in place for Britney the way it eventually was for Miley, 
But even after Britney's time on the Mickey Mouse Club ended, she re-emerged as a pop singer when she was still a minor, with Baby One More Time coming out when Britney was just 16 years old. As Britney matured and explored a more adult public image, her sexuality was shamed by those who thought she should be a role model for young girls whom, as we all know, are infamously asexual beings. If I had a 17-year-old daughter, she would not be walking out of the house like that. I think it's a shameful business, 17-year-old girl. Think about those 12-year-olds that listen to your music, and think about the 12-year-olds who saw you on the VMAs, and think what they're thinking. They probably are thinking that it's okay to dress like that, which it's not. Miley was similarly lambasted as she transitioned out of her squeaky clean Disney image into that of an evolving young adult, having every move she made scrutinized for her inadvertent impact on her kid audience. And we just wanted to let the world know that, and Miley Cyrus know that she's a bad influence and she should probably change herself because a lot of younger girls want to dress like her and act like her, so she should in 2013, when Miley released the Bangers album, she was at peak controversy. Now, some of the backlash was valid. Miley's appropriation of the Black American community has caused many to deem her a culture vulture, messily borrowing elements of hip hop into her music along with Black aesthetics. Dang, bitch. You think I'm strange, bitch? It's bananas like a fucking orangutan, bitch. Don't worry about me. I got it all arranged, bitch. Mind your business. Stay in your lane, bitch. Then abandoning that sound of persona later when she attempted a more mature image. Feels like I just woke up. Like all this time I've been asleep. I wouldn't blame anyone for distrusting Miley based on her history of appropriation. But I do personally empathize with her struggle to claim her own identity as she entered the pop world, trying to escape the shadow of Hannah Montana and the pressures of being a role model since she was 14 years old. While unfortunate, especially in her execution, it's not surprising that Miley would latch onto a different cultural identity completely as she created a new persona detached from a Disney-approved adolescence. Most people chastising Miley didn't care that she was a white girl appropriating black aesthetics in a misguided attempt to rebel against the straight blonde wigs of yore. They didn't like her because she displayed a blatant sexuality that threatened a patriarchal conception for how good girls behave. She's making tunes that are actually pretty decent. Like, they're catchy songs. They're still going to number one. She's just, like... Naked, yeah. With that being said, I'll leave it at this. You mentioned twerking. Can you twerk? Does Ed Sheeran... Does Ed Sheeran twerk? No, and people need to stop encouraging other people to twerk. <laughs> like, like the, 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 twer the twerking thing has come from a move that strippers do. Strippers get paid to twerk on really no lonely, weird old men. The point in any case is that Britney and Miley are kindred spirits as two pop divas who've been unfairly maligned for daring to explore less child-appropriate personas when they themselves aged out of childhood so publicly. One thing I, um, I read about Miley uh, Cyrus is that you guys hit it off so well because you're, you're able to, uh, uh, to connect on so much, like obviously with the media attention and everything. Yeah, I remember that, that age when I was just trans 
transferring into my career and like doing more controversial things and stuff yeah. like that and the energy that you feel and like just just all this this kind of chaos going on and like she is just she's on fire right yeah. now she is on fire she's like she's like just a ball full of energy no matter how this collab came about Brittany and Miley are a natural pairing that I'd love to see come together again sometime in the future, especially since neither of them work with Larry Rudolph anymore. Yay! But alright, we've got some other long rants coming up, so let's move forward. The next three I'll get through quickly. 98, seal it with a kiss. 97, Selfish, which has such an underrated bridge. 96, Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know. I might not like ballads, but I am a sucker for a good riff. Plus, the track had some great live vocal moments. But then a song we're gonna have to talk about for a minute for perhaps immediately obvious reasons. Number 95, Born to Make You Happy. If the title alone doesn't give away what I think might be a bit problematic about this one, let's do a little contextualizing. So the 90s overall were a weird time for girls. At the start of the decade, Western society was entering what many scholars called the third wave of feminism, arguably kicked off by Riot Girl, an underground feminist punk movement arising from a subculture dedicated to creating space for women within punk rock and the general music industry. Emotionally complex, decidedly defiant women began dominating the pop rock and alternative music scenes with artists and bands like Hole, Alanis Morissette, and Vogue, Sinead O'Connor, Bikini Kill, who sings Rebel Girl, Lauren Hill, Fiona Apple, Tori Amos, TLC. Okay, I do have to stop just naming female musicians that I like from the 90s, but it's hard. All in all, it was a pretty good decade for female songwriters and performers. So much so that by the late 90s, Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin the woman who scarred a generation of children with a series of TV ads. In the arms of the angel, created a traveling music festival called Lilith Fair in 1997, which ran for about three years before being revived briefly in the 2010s and consisted exclusively of female solo artists and female-led bands. Not only were women making waves in music like never before, many of them felt inclined to challenge the norms and expectations of our culture. So what I want to say is, um, everybody out there that's watching, everybody that's watching this world, this world is both. And you shouldn't model your life. Wait a second. You shouldn't model your life about what you think that we think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying and everything. Go with yourself. Go with yourself. 
Even bubblegum pop artists leaned into the new concept of girl power arising from the Riot Girl movement. The Spice Girls appropriation of the girl power slogan has prompted a lot of nuanced discussion about the role of pop commercialized feminism that we obviously don't have time to fully parse today. But for any criticism the girl group has gotten for watering down messages of female empowerment, they were still a group that was singing primarily to young girls, showing them that you could be strong and powerful without needing to sacrifice your perceived femininity. Girl okay. power is about being individual, being whoever you want to be, right. wearing your short skirts, your underbras and your makeup, oh, but having something to say right. as well. The gibberish of words like zigazig ah aside, their hit song Wannabe has the girls singing to a presumably male suitor but setting expectations for how they demand to be treated in their relationship. If you want my future, forget my past. If you want to get with me, better make it fast. Now don't go wasting my precious time. Get your act together, we could be just fine. Specific the expectation that their lover get along with their friend group, making it clear that the Spice Girls prioritize female friendship over male validation. If you wanna be my lover, you gotta get with my friends. Make it last forever, friendship never ends. If you wanna be my lover, you have got to give. Taking is too easy, but that's the way it is. There's a prevailing notion that any woman or group of women that make pop music are merely products of a male-dominated pop industry rather than legitimate artists. It's an idea that upholds the concept of the manufactured pop star, because a woman couldn't possibly be talented or creative enough on her own to reach a certain level of success. That's not to say there aren't manufactured elements involved in the creation of some women's pop star personas. There are with men's too. Record labels are profit-driven like in any other business, and they don't want to sink their investment in an artist by not making them as marketable as possible. The assumption that the Spice Girls specifically were a mere pop industry product barren of any creative input for their work, however, is obscenely inaccurate. And there was one particular audition where um, this uh, manager wanted to put a like, manufactured ba band. We're far too imperfect to work in a manufactured band. Right. You know, so it didn't work and we went away and wrote our own stuff, managed ourselves, created the spicy girl power right. movement. Started girl power! Started writing our own material and just getting things together because we had our own ideas of what we wanted to do. So we wanted to go to a manager when, when we were ready and packaged and just say, right, here we are. I was going to say, we, you know, the songs that we write are on our own experiences, you know, whether it's about love, sex, boyfriends, friendship. And, you know, and we're sort of the same sort of age group that, you know, people that, but the girls that buy our songs, maybe they can identify with what we're singing about. While the Spice Girls were able to make music young girls related to because they were writing songs from their own perspectives, Britney's first album was written exclusively by adult men. We talked about that a bit the last episode. With Email My Heart at least, the lyrics were just cringe and cheesy. Born to Make You Happy is a little more troublesome. Much of 
Britney's early branding centered around a passive good girl image that almost offset the more assertive feminine attitudes that had begun to permeate 90s pop culture. If PJ Harvey singing about drowning a child in a river wasn't your thing, here's the Southern Baptist sweetheart Britney Spears who just wants to sing songs about her devotion to some unnamed boy. Had Britney written the song herself, I could at least write it off as a product of adolescent codependence on a boyfriend she'd surely forget about in a year. But this track was created by two grown men who decided on lyrics for their teenage performer that has her declaring her entire existence is only valid if she's making her lover happy. I'm sure some people will say I'm thinking too deeply about this, but again, these are the lyrics that were chosen by adult men to go onto a 17-year-old girl's album. It's a little weird. And yet we can't deny that this song is an absolute bop. I mean, sonically, it's one of the best tracks on the album, and the little dance break they added to the live rendition? That's just fucking perfect, I'm sorry. Moving on at number 94, I've Just Begun Having My Fun, a barely known track that was only released on a 2004 compilation album, yet somehow wound up on the Bridesmaid soundtrack. I, I don't know how. And then at number 93, Drop Dead Beautiful featuring Sabby. Who's Sabby, you ask? Mmm. I went onto her Wikipedia page, it doesn't seem like she has an extensive body of work. Her photo, in fact, is of her singing this song on the Femme Fatale tour in 2011, and the picture is blurry as fuck. Like, they really didn't have anything better to use, huh? I assumed at first that Britney and Sabby might be label mates, and maybe Britney's album was Jive's way of promoting an up-and-coming artist, but Sabby wasn't signed to Jive. The only person they had in common at the time was the producer Dr. Luke, who they'd both been working with. I gotta be honest though, no hate to Sabby, but if her verse on this song is representative of her greater work, I will not be following her career further. Steaming like a pot full of vegetables. Alright, Sabby. Anyway, there's some more Femme Fatale tracks coming up. At number 92, Trouble For Me. Tell me if this song sounds familiar. If you've heard the sound-alike track before, you'll probably immediately know what I'm referring to. If you haven't, allow me to introduce to you Me Too by Megan Trainer, released six years after Trouble For Me. The funny thing is, Britney's never spoken about these two songs' similarities, but she has danced to Megan's track on her Instagram page before. She apparently likes the song, and I should hope so, since she already recorded it herself. 
Megan actually has a connection to Team Brit, though, but not in a way that's super flattering to her. What did you make of her post? It's like, were you reassured that she's saying to yeah. her fans she's doing well? Yeah, I knew she was doing well. Um, I have, like, uh, friends of her family, or we're close, but, like, um, I know she's doing well and she's very happy right now. That clip came shortly after rumors spread that Britney had been held in a mental health facility against her will. Britney since claimed the treatment was abusive and traumatizing to her, but the likely informant Megan had telling her that Britney was happy and okay was Lou Taylor, one of the alleged co-conspirators for Britney's entire conservatorship and Megan Trainer's business manager. Now, I don't know what Megan's been told or what sort of impression she's under about Lou's involvement with Britney's conservatorship, but as far as I'm aware, she does still work with Lou and her company TriStar, and that is icky to me. Then at number 91, Gasoline, and number 90, Up and Down, all of the last four tracks came from the Femme Fatale album, and all four are of roughly similar quality. They're not super adventurous or innovative in any way, nor do they have anything all that significant to say, but they're fun dance pop songs nonetheless. Then at number 89, Overprotected, the Dark Child remix. This is one of those remix exceptions that I mentioned, since this song, along with its original, received a music video. We'll talk about the track more once we get to the original, but the video is significant on its own, especially as it opens with an acknowledgement of the kind of press Britney had begun receiving. Earlier this week, Britney Spears plummeted to new depths of depravity when she appeared at an awards show wearing, well, hardly anything. When asked to comment on now, the next two tracks are going to prompt a whole ass rant, so strap in. At number 88 and 87, I Can't Get No Satisfaction and I Love Rock and Roll. Both of these are covers, of course, the first by the Rolling Stones and the second originally by the Arrows, but most famously performed by Joan Jett and the Black Hearts. Both were panned by critics, especially the former. Reactions had less to do with the tracks on their own, but the fact that Britney had attempted the covers in the first place, daring to take these rock and roll classics while adding her own pop flair. They're less common now due to the outpouring of support Britney's gotten since her conservatorship became a hub for publicity. But if you go back far enough into her YouTube comments, you can find angry rock fans expressing indignance at the fact that Britney chose to sing songs made by artists they've superficially deemed to be more serious musicians. With her Rolling Stones cover, we have comments like, Britney should be singing country hits. She's more apt with those, not rock and roll classics. Screw Britney, talentless bitch. Well, I'm a Stones fan and was curious how other people perform their songs, but covers like this are an insult to the original musicians. Britney knows nothing about rock and roll, so she shouldn't be singing rock and roll songs. This is fucking horrible. Like, it isn't bad enough that it's with her, but that it's a Rolling Stones song she ruined makes it even worse. And then there's this one, which I feel weird even saying out loud. But I want to emphasize the extent to which this hatred goes. Somebody kill this bitch! This song is a disgrace for the Rolling Stones! 
The comments on I Love Rock and Roll aren't that much better. Britney should be arrested for butchering this song beyond repair. If you're gonna do a cover of a song, do it well. Joan Jett did it well, why can't you? Because you're a punk. Joan is a rock and roll legend, that's why. She totally messed this song. Joan Jett had great voice and energy, and Britney couldn't even cope vocally with this song. I was never a big fan of Britney. Plasticky, artificially created American princess. Ruined a good song. A pop singer must not take on rock song. It's fucking rock and roll, and now it's sounding more girly, popish, more poopy, more sexist. Original song is by Joan Jett. I love rock and roll. Go and check. Again, Joan Jett did not sing that song originally, but yeah, you know so much about rock and roll and not poopy girly songs. Here's also one that's a little different, but I still wanted to highlight it since I found it, um, peculiar? Singing about being with 17-year-olds? No surprise given what Hit Me Baby One More Time played backwards says. That's what we get for taking the wrong side in the Second World War. So yeah. Much of the negative reactions here aren't just criticizing Britney's rendition, they're obscenely dramatic, like she's committed some moral crime by doing these covers. It doesn't just stop at petty commenters either. The popular YouTube channel slash content farm Watch Mojo put Britney's I Can't Get No Satisfaction cover into their 2016 video, the top 10 worst cover songs. And my girl's not just on the list. She's number one. Absolutely no one asked for this, and it's as bad as everyone thinks, as Spears winds her way slowly throughout the song in her signature whiny voice, so far detached from Jagger's iconic roughness that we can't help but feel embarrassed for her. And they add in another dick too. Spears should simply stay away from classic rock, as her cover of I Love Rock and Roll didn't garner too many fans either. Even their criticisms, I honestly can't understand what they're talking about. Like, these are whiny vocals to you? This is an incredible rendition. I like it, but even I only put it at number 88 out of 149 songs for Britney's own discography. But to call it the worst cover of all time is so absurd to me. You know what the worst cover of all time is? You'll Be In My Heart by Drew Seeley on Disney Mania 6. Come stop to cry, be alright. Just take my hand. I will protect you from all around you. I will be here. Don't you cry. Sorry about that, but I had to prove a point. The wild hostility Britney got for these covers has far less to do with her performances and far more to do with the exaggerated reverence rock fans have treated the songs of their own genre. No one upholds the work of their favorite artists as untouchable and sacred as much as rock fans do, and it's beyond annoying. Sometimes I like to fall down rabbit holes on YouTube watching things along the lines of 
metal fan reacts to pop music. And to be clear, some of the videos are absolutely lovely. There are reactors out there who are just genuinely trying to expand their own palettes and show appreciation for music outside of what they typically listen to. As a fan of all genres myself, I love seeing that those people are so wholesome and wonderful to me. But then I'll find myself on channels like this. You wanna know what I don't like? Pop music. You know, the same chord progressions, same, same drum beat, auto-tune, they're all the same. Those who hold themselves as aficionados of non-pop music always seem to have incredibly reductive opinions on what makes a song worth anyone's time. They act like auto-tune or any use of digital voice effects automatically invalidates someone's talent as a performer or that music made via computer programs can't possibly contain any artistic expression. Oh, and they're really obsessed with how many chords a song uses? There's already been five different chords in this song, so I'm, I'm already impressed. For people who think computer programs make music soulless, I'm not sure why they're so concerned with the literal math of chord progressions. It goes beyond just the fans, though. Plenty of rock musicians play into this false hierarchy of what gets to count as real music. Most obnoxiously, there's Corey Taylor from Slipknot. Yeah, there, there's those moments where, especially when I'm hanging out with my kids, and I hate to throw them under the bus, but oh, no. where they're kind of listening to what passes for popular music, and I'm just going, it's yeah. like, I, I think I even described it in the book, I feel like I'm being stunned by like a thousand bees all at once because it's just, it's painful. It's so auto-tuned and it's so beat corrected and it's so canned and processed and lifeless. And I mean, you might as well be listening to a fucking piece of wood at that point. Mm. It bothers me because I put so much into everything I do. I put so much into my music. I bleed for it, I die for it every goddamn night, you know? And to watch these people basically let a computer go through the motions and do all the work for them, it's insulting. First off, the people who make it to the top of the charts with electronic music are absolutely not letting computer programs do anything for them. Those programs are a tool that professionals and artists learn to manipulate to their liking just like any other instrument. Secondly, the idea that pop music of today is objectively worse than the popular music of previous decades is just ridiculously short-sighted. Of course, you can have preferences for styles of music that might have been more prevalent in previous eras, and you can dislike trends of other eras. Personally, as big of a pop fan as I am, I don't really love much of the pop of the early 2010s. Dr. Luke's reign over pop radio was a dark time for many reasons. But the catastrophizing involved with acting like pop music of any era is so bad that you feel like you're being stung by a thousand bees all at once is so babyish. But it's more or less a consistent attitude among rock fans. Maybe you're familiar with the concept of rockism versus poptimism? It's a debate within music journalism and criticism in which rockism represents the belief that rock music is a genre that values authenticity and is therefore a more legitimate art form compared to other styles of music, especially pop, which is derided by a raucous perspective as inauthentic and shallow. 
Poptimism then represents the belief that pop music is as worthy of critical examination on its own merit as rock or other more analog styles of music. Music journalism right now is in an era that mostly consists of poptimist viewpoints. I won't say there are no problems with that. Sometimes the output of big-name pop acts does get graded on a curve in order to counteract raucous values. But the fact is, rockism deserves to be counteracted. Especially given the history of the rock community's desire to stomp out trends they don't relate to. So let's go back to a specific date. July 12th, 1979, better known as Disco Demolition Night. In a few minutes, we're going to attempt the world's largest disco demolition. But first, we have a musical treat for you. Please welcome the village people. What? You don't like the village people? Oh, how about that a summer? Oh, gee, that's too bad. We had her waiting off in the wings, too. Tracking the history of specific genres is incredibly difficult, if not actually impossible, given how every current music style has evolved from other genres, subgenres, and movements. It's hard to even make distinctions for what is rock and roll and what is just rock. And much of what we'd exclusively call rock and roll today would have previously been deemed pop like the Beatles or Elvis Presley. For the purposes of this episode, let's say that the rock genre as we now know it peaked in popularity around the 60s and early 70s. Hard rock with bands like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Van Halen, etc. rose to prominence around the early to mid-70s and appealed to an audience primarily made up of white heterosexual men under the age of, say, 45. But then came disco, a genre of dance music closely associated with a subculture of urban nightlife. The genre's name comes from the French word discotheque, which came to define the music and dance-driven nightclubs of the 1970s. When people think of disco now, they likely think of outdated dance moves or whitewashed depictions of 70s urban dance clubs like that in Saturday Night Fever starring John Travolta, but the genre gave rise to a movement that pushed forward many innovations we'd now take for granted. Prior to the rise of the discotheque, Music's place in the average adult's nightlife consisted mostly of going to see live musicians perform. That's a great experience for sure, but a wholly different one from the more social activity of going out dancing with your friends. Plus, it's a hell of a lot less accessible since paying musicians to perform is way more expensive than just getting a residential DJ to spin some records at a local venue. Club culture then influenced things like fashion, the evolution of dance, the development of technologies like the strobe light, hi-fi sound systems, and the disco ball. Would Taylor Swift's masterpiece of a song Mirrorball even exist without disco? The answer is no. More than anything though, the popularity of disco helped bring the music and culture of racial and ethnic minorities as well as other oppressed subcultures into the mainstream. The music and nightlife culture blended elements of Motown, Euro dance pop, Latin rhythms, the Latin hustle, and the underground queer movements. And the rock community fucking hated it. So much so, in fact, 
They wrote songs about how much they hated it. Just take those old records off the shelf. I said, listen to them by myself. Today's music ain't got the same song. I like that old time of rock and roll. Don't try to take me to a disco. You'll never even get me out on the floor. In 10 minutes, I'll be late for the door. I like that old time of rock and roll. That song's a bop, though, what can I say? It's a shame it had to feature lyrics about a conflict so fucking petty. As disco overtook rock music as America's most popular genre, rock fans became aggressive in their hard stance against both the music and the culture that created it. Radio shock jock personality Steve Dahl situated himself as the leader for his own anti-disco campaign when he was fired from his radio job in late 1978 after the station he worked for decided to switch from playing rock to playing disco. For Steve, the genre's popularity was personal, as it was for many of those that followed his lead. Radio stations were playing disco more and hard rock less, and some rock musicians were starting to make the switch as well, most infamously the band KISS. were quick to deem the band as sellouts, which is laughable to me because I'm not sure why anyone took KISS seriously to begin with. Can you really sell out when you didn't have any principles in the first place? And you're literally now famous for licensing more merchandise than any other musical act in history? Directly selling your name and image for the sake of capital isn't selling out to these fans as much as borrowing elements of other genres is, because to them, the popularity of those genres signified their looming irrelevance in pop culture. When I think of the anti-disco movement, I involuntarily hear chants in my head akin to the 2017 Charlottesville protests, except they're shouting disco will not replace us instead of Jews. That might sound dramatic and perhaps a bit insensitive to compare people disliking disco to literal Nazism, but we shouldn't ignore the racist, homophobic, and misogynistic undertones of the disco demolition. Ousted from his job, Steve Dahl pulled strings with the Chicago White Sox owner Bill Veek to plan a promotional gimmick in which anyone who brought a disco record to Kaminsky Park the night of a doubleheader between the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers would get admission to the game for only 88 cents. In between the two games, the disco records will be blown up on the field. The park, which hosted about 15,000 attendees for an average game, wound up with a crowd of 50,000 people, many of whom had snuck in without even buying a ticket to the game. Following the explosion, the crowd rushed the field and began a riot that was eventually broken up by police. The White Sox had to forfeit the second game of the night as the field was too destroyed to continue playing. You can say the demolition had nothing to do with racism or homophobia, and sure, some of the people who participated that night came to the event without such prejudices, but bigotry undoubtedly laced the motivations of much of the disco suck sentiment. And everybody's gonna know, so us rock and rollers here in Chicago think 
That phrase, by the way, was the official battle cry of the anti-disco movement. Steve Dahl wore a shirt with the saying, the night of the demolition, and while that may seem merely childish and unimaginative, because it is those things, it's also a little homophobic. See, today if I say something sucks, we're distanced enough from that word's etymological origin in 2022 for it to just mean is bad. In 1979, though, sucks was more closely associated with the actual act of sucking, and I think you can see where I'm going with this. Saying disco sucks means saying disco sucks dick, and the implication is no one who sucks dick should be worthy of serious consideration, whether that be women or gay men. Along with leading the crowd in a Disco Sucks chant, Steve Dahl loudly sings the words to his own parody of the Rod Stewart song, Do You Think I'm Sexy, called Do You Think I'm Disco, the lyrics of which lambast male fans of disco for their effeminate appearances. I work for E.F. Hutton Snotnose, do you think I'm disco? Cause I spent so much time blowing right out my hair. You like it? Do you think I'm disco? Cause I know the dance steps. Learn them all and try to stare. Don't worry, he's got a verse making fun of female fans too. I like to dance with girls in sleazy dresses, lipstick, nail charms, and makeup in excesses. Buy them a drink and try and get their number. But usually, they're as cold as a cucumber. Do you think I'm disco? Am I superficial? Look at him, my only goal! In 2016, NPR created a piece contextualizing the demolition with an interesting statement from Vince Lawrence, an usher at that night's game. Lawrence was an aspiring musician, saving up money for a synthesizer. He says he was also one of the few African Americans there that night, and he began to notice something odd about the records people brought. Tyrone Davis records and freaking Curtis Mayfield records and Otis Clay records, records that were clearly not disco. Records by black artists. So how does this extend to the rockism of today? Some would say that disco died after 1979, and while it did significantly dip in popularity, many of the radio stations that switched from rock to disco soon switched back, its influence can be heard all over today's pop hits. In 2020, there was almost a full disco revival, with Lady Gaga using elements of the genre on her Chromatica album, along with Dua Lipa on Future Nostalgia, Kylie Minogue on her aptly titled record Disco, and Doja Cat's single Say So. Before that, though, disco's innovations have had profound impacts on the late 20th century and early 21st century dance pop, electro pop, house music, EDM, and more. People now question if rock music is dead, and if it is, it was the rock community's elitism and bigotry that killed it. Like disco, rock has had a lasting impact on the evolution of popular music, but rock fans often won't claim that impact as an organic evolution of their genre because they maintain their rockist identity specifically through a philosophy of exclusion. If a rock artist starts to experiment too much with elements of hip-hop, dance music, or anything electronic, 
there's a whole culture of fans ready to declare them as no longer making real rock music, which to many of them directly translates to real music, period. Along with the videos of rock fans reacting to pop, I also occasionally watch the more convoluted video style of rock fan reacts to pop fan reacting to rock music. Mocking listeners of pop, hip-hop, EDM, etc. is a great way to mock women, queer folk, and people of color without coming across as a totally blatant bigot. I, like, I really like John Mayer. Um, listen to a lot of What is women's fascination with John Mayer? Um, I like Ariana Grande. I like Justin Bieber. And I like John Mayer. He's so freaking hot. These girls are not gonna like metal at all. With Britney Spears reigning as the archetypal 21st century pop star, rock fans deciding she's the antithesis of real art is a covert way to invalidate the interests of young girls especially. Sometimes the misogyny aimed at her was in such severe form in the 2000s, I can't believe it was even legal. Like in 2002, when Alice Cooper incorporated the rock fan's derision of Britney into his stage act, having his daughter come onto his stage wearing a Britney costume as the beginning of Baby One More Time plays on the speakers. Britney Spears! Alice, while wearing a t-shirt that says Britney wants me on the front and dead on the back, then performs a fake fist fight with the fake Britney until the two are off stage. When he walks back on, he's holding Britney's decapitated head to an eruption of cheers from the audience. The whole scene is horrific, but most people aren't even aware that it happened because for the time it wasn't abnormal. Sure, it was a 54-year-old man depicting a violent fictional death of a real 21-year-old girl who hadn't done anything wrong, but Britney was the representation to these men of the vapid female pop star that must be destroyed for the sake of real art, like that of the decidedly apolitical glorified magician Alice Cooper. Like, straight up, I appreciate his theatrics and how he influenced rock concerts to be a little more imaginative visually, but Britney Spears has released more music that actually has something to say about our society and our culture than Alice Cooper ever has, and that's not even debatable, it's just true. So anyone that's upset that Britney would dare touch the work of rock legends like the Rolling Stones or Joan Jett because they think Britney is artistically unworthy of the rock genre can suck my ass. Oh, and Mick Jagger agrees. Not about the sucking my ass part, but he liked Britney's cover of his song so much that he reached out to Rodney Jenkins, aka Dark Child, the producer of Britney's version, because he wanted to work with him after hearing his daughter listening to Britney's album. Mick and Britney even did a very cute interview together ahead of the 2001 VMAs. Are you a Britney fan? Am I a Britney fan? Of course I am. And she did one of our songs, didn't she? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she do it well? She did it very well. Well, it's because I'm sitting right here. <laughs> You'd tell me that. Oh, well, thank you. That means this is the kind of camaraderie I want to see with fans and musicians of all genres. <sighs> I know that was a long-winded rant kick-started by two songs that are relatively unimportant to the entire scope of Britney's career, 
But the rockist attitudes that fueled the reception for those tracks infects the entirety of Britney's place in pop culture. She's maligned for being too pop to the point that those convinced of pop's inherent inferiority refuse to see the artistic validity of her work and her sheer talent as a performer. Britney's renditions of Satisfaction and I Love Rock and Roll just aren't bad songs on their own. They're only bad if you automatically believe that pop music is bad, which it isn't. That's why it's so fucking popular. Moving on finally though, at 86, Rock Me In. Don't worry, just because it has rock in the title doesn't mean I'm going to start ranting again. This track is actually almost pure synth pop, and it's one of my favorite lesser known tracks in Britney's discography. I can't explain it, but there's something about it that gives me Dance Dance Revolution vibes. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. If you know, you know. If you don't know, like, I honestly feel bad for you. Like, I, I cannot explain it. Like, I don't have the vocabulary to sit here and explain it. Like, Either you get the vibe or you don't get the vibe. Then at 85, a track from Britney's first album that marks the first entry into the tag of Weird Knee, a subcategory of Britney's music that would become more prevalent in albums to come, Soda Pop. She likes to throw in at least one song onto a track list that's just a little further left field than the rest of her discography, and it's often the most interesting work in her catalog. And then at 84, Just Love Me, this is the first track from Glory that we've hit on the list, and I know some people will weep at the implication that it's the worst song on the album. But the song is ranked where it is because the biggest criticism I've read about Glory the album is that it was too trend-chasing as a mid-2010s release. Just Love Me is the only song where I think that criticism really applies, as it sounds incredibly similar to songs on Selena Gomez's album Revival, which features a lot of the same names in the writing credits for both albums. So here's Just Love Me. And here's Selena's Good For You. I just wanna look good for you, good for you, uh-huh. And then 83, another track from Glory, Hard To Forget Ya, and 82, another weirdly classic, Mmm Poppy. a little more controversial within the fandom, some finding it fun and quirky, and others thinking it's just obnoxious. I fall into the former group as a general fan of any time Britney gets more playful with her vocal inflections. Then number 81, Better, 
Number 80, Cinderella. And number 79, possibly Britney's least known single, the disco-inspired Anticipating. The song was in fact only released as a single in France, other than a colorful performance for the Dream Within a Dream tour, the track never really got any promotion. But as one of the songs Britney has a writing credit on for her self-titled album, it feels extremely Britney. Sonically, it has a funky pop groove, while lyrically, it celebrates an evening out with your best lady friends. I can just tell that Britney's a real girl's girl, so it is fitting for her overall vibe. Moving on, number 78, I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. There's a lot I could say about this song, but for the sake of time, I'll boil my thoughts down to two things. Number one, some great live moments with this track. I Love Rock and Roll, this track was featured on both Britney's third album, the self-titled Britney, and the 2002 film Crossroads, which Britney both starred in and wrote the rough treatment for. As a film, Crossroads is okay. The plot is a bit contrived, it adheres to a lot of overly simplistic tropes, and the male love interest is thoroughly unlikable. But Britney is talented as an actress, and the movie explores deeper themes than one would expect from a project of its kind. Movies like Glitter starring Mariah Carey were often just vehicles for pop stars to worm their way into the film industry, meaning the movies themselves were typically soulless and maybe a little lazy. Love you, Mariah. Crossroads is at least attempting to be something other than a shallow venture into film for Britney. It has value beyond its star power, and the fact that Britney came up with the concept for the plot is unsurprising as a coming-of-age story for three female best friends. It's authentic to the kind of story Britney's always been interested in telling, and I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman fits perfectly into those themes. Then 77 Tom's Diner by Giorgio Moroder, featuring Britney. This is another cover song, and actually the only one in Britney's discography where I actually hate the original. Giorgio's version, in my opinion, is a vast improvement, and not just because Britney's voice is on it, but because I think the meandering lyrics work so much better with an EDM production. Then 76, Phonography, 75, Blur, and 74, Make Me, featuring G-Eazy. Admittedly, I might be putting this song so high up toward the worst end because my association with it relates to the overall disappointment of the Glory era. Don't get me wrong, Glory as an album is incredible. 
To me, it has a well-earned spot in Britney's Holy Trinity, but the complete lack of promo for this era was so upsetting, especially compared to what we thought we would be getting. Make Me To Its Credit did receive a decent amount of mainstream attention. Britney performed it at the VMAs, it was played during Carpool Karaoke with James Corden, it even made an appearance on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Compared to every other track on the album, Make Me definitely got the farthest out into the public. It still marks the beginning of Glory's disastrous promo campaign, though. If you're not a stan, you may not know that the music video released for this song was not the first video Britney filmed for it. The original was shot by David LaChapelle, but that version has never been officially released or, as far as I'm aware, even fully edited. Allegedly, it was Britney that decided to not release the video because it was a bit too risque for her. But Make Me was already a single and the music video was already announced and being teased online when it got cut. Britney's team then made a second video that was much tamer and ultimately disappointing for fans. The only thing of note in the official video is that the original cover for Glory is literally just a screenshot from the Make Me video which should clue you into the amount of promo they did for this album, or the amount of cleanup that came from the era's previous concepts. See, David LaChapelle didn't just shoot the first Make Me video, he apparently also directed the photo shoot that was supposed to be used as the album's official cover art. The original cover was revealed in 2020 after fans sent Glory to number one on iTunes charts four years after its release, and during Britney's legal battle against her conservatorship. While Britney was refusing to work with her dad still in control of her life and estate, her record label released new editions of Glory along with final releases for her previous records and replaced the screenshot cover photo with the originally intended artwork. It showed Britney lying on desert ground holding giant chains, a possible reference to her legal captivity as a conservatee. I can see why Britney's team wouldn't want that cover hitting shelves, but it's demonstrably better than the cover fans originally got in 2016. It's possible a similar motivation went into the canning of the original Make Me video as well. When the Free Britney movement started blowing up with rumors Britney was being held in a mental health facility against her will, the original video, though still not fully edited, leaked onto social media. Some theorize that the leakers may have been Britney's own team trying to create a distraction from the Free Britney movement. This theory was further fueled by claims made by David LaChapelle himself when he commented on Instagram, This is some of my footage, this is not my edit. I find it very suspect that the video was quote leaked while Britney was quote away. David then went on to confirm that Britney was in fact the person that stopped the release, but unless he heard this directly from Britney's mouth, I have to take that with a grain of salt. There have been many reported instances of Britney's team relaying messages on her behalf that wasn't actually something Britney herself had communicated, so I'm not sure what to make of this claim, but David went on to say something that contributed heavily to the early part of the Free Britney movement, writing, the video slash song wasn't released because Britney didn't like it. Her voice as an artist should be respected. 
The only direction Brittany ever gave me for this video is for me to film her in the cage. At the time, I didn't understand why would you want to be filmed in a cage. At first, I envisioned to film her as a tigress, but she wanted to be filmed more timid like a kitten. For everyone on my team at least, we could tell something was off. For the video every time, the only direction Brittany gave me for the video was that she wanted to die. That she wanted to die in the video. For the commercial for the Onyx Hotel tour, Brittany never showed up. She was getting married in Vegas. I have known Brittany since she was 17. I shot her first cover, Rolling Stone. It was shot in Louisiana at her family home filled with her pageant trophies. I could tell even back then that something wasn't right. Hashtag free Britney. Needless to say, this song has some fucking baggage, and the cage metaphor of the video seems incredibly similar to the chain metaphor in the original cover. It's hard not to make assumptions about why these things didn't immediately make it into the public's view, but until Britney comes out and talks more about the behind-the-scenes aspect of this era in her career, I just don't think we're ever gonna know. Anywho, number 73, Early Morning. Number 72, Till the World Ends. I know a lot of people love this song. In like every ranking I've ever seen for Britney's tracks, it always makes it into at least the top 20. But let's be honest, the track just isn't special enough to be that significant. So many other people working in pop in the early 2010s could have performed this song. A bop for sure, but it doesn't have the Britney oomph that delivers it past generic electro pop. It's a good song. I will absolutely cop to that. I just can't justify putting it anywhere close to like the top 50. I'm sorry. Number 71, 3. Number 70, Perfect Lover. And number 69, Copure Electrique. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly because from what I've read online, Brittany is also not pronouncing much of this exclusively French song correctly. Still, two things I like about the track. First, though it's actually a bonus track, it is the last song on the Glory Deluxe Edition, the only album of Britney's in which I notice a purposefulness regarding the order of the tracklist. It feels like an album that's meant to be listened from top to bottom, rather than just a random collection of pop songs. And this track makes the perfect outro. And then second, supposedly Copure Electric loosely translates to power outage, aka a blackout, the name of Britney's greatest album to date. Was this a shout-out to Britney's best work, the last thing she produced pre-conservatorship? It's one of the many questions that haunts me. Then 68, I got that boom boom featuring the Ying Yang twins. For those boys out there. 
In the Zone, Blackout, and Glory are Britney's holy trinity to me. They are Britney's best albums, and from the outside, it appears that these are the three albums that Britney had the most creative control over. While Blackout and Glory are a bit more cohesive, every song feels like a part of a whole, In The Zone has a bit more variety of genres, and you can tell listening to it that this was a certain kind of peak in Britney's career, where she really wanted to try new things and experiment with different types of music. I Got That Boom Boom is an example of that as this song has much more hip-hop influences than usually found in Britney's work. This is also a collaboration with the Ying Yang twins, one of the two collabs on In The Zone, another indication that Britney wanted to branch out and try new things. Other than Don Phillips on Baby One More Time, Britney had no featured artists on any of her albums until In The Zone. Then number 67, I Wanna Go, a song about breaking free and living however you want, released while Britney didn't have the right to drive her car by herself. Allegedly. Number 66, Love Me Down, 65, What It's Like To Be Me, 64, Private Show, 63, Bombastic Love. I have a hot take about that song, but I'm gonna spare you for now because this episode is already long enough. 62, Brave New Girl, 61, Let Me Be, and 60, A Regrettable Masterpiece. This is one of the first songs in which Britney expresses some direct awareness of her own image and shaky reputation. It was released around the time that the public started turning on her, especially after all of Justin Timberlake's bullshit, but here she embraces her new image rather than run from it. If everyone thinks she's a big slut following her breakup, she might as well have fun being the outrageous person she's been made out to be. I fucking love this song, but before you go listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music or something, you should know that R. Kelly wrote it, so maybe just pirate it or something so he doesn't get any of the money? I don't know. If you have the physical CD, play that shit all day, in the privacy of your own home where no one can get any of your money. Outrageous also has some extra significance to Britney's career, since she broke her knee during the filming of the track's music video, which was never finished, midway through her Onyx Hotel tour. After the video shoot, her life and career shifted focus. The rest of the tour was cancelled, Britney started getting super into K-Fed's dick, they did a reality show, had some kids, and Britney's dancing never really went back to what it was, at least not on a consistent basis, as I personally think that had more to do with motivation than physical ability. Still, the knee injury marks the end of what some call prime Britney, where complex choreography was her calling card as a performer. Then at 59, what you see is what you get. Britney's self-titled album is where she really lets go of the more submissive and tame persona of the first album, but it does start to be challenged in Oops I Did It Again, and What You See Is What You Get is one of the better examples of this. 
at 58 invitation while Copure Electric works well on Glory's tracklist as a conclusion, Invitation works as the album's intro, giving Glory a structure that Britney's albums have otherwise lacked. And then 57, Why Should I Be Sad? I know I've talked a little bit about how Britney's first album felt so inauthentic because it was an album made for a teenage girl written by a bunch of grown men, but I don't want to imply that just because a song is written by someone else that that means it's impersonal for the person singing it. On the contrary, I would argue that Blackout is Britney's most personal album and she's only credited as a co-writer for 2 out of 15 tracks. She is listed, however, as a co-writer for every song on Britney Jean, but if you listen to the first episode, you already know how I feel about that album. Why Should I Be Sad specifically is a good example for why writing credits may not be a very good indicator for a song being personal to its singer because while Britney doesn't have a credit on it, it is so obviously about her breakup with K-Fed and couldn't be about anything else. Why Should I Be Sad really might be the most candid song in Britney's discography. And then at number 56, a song that I'll admit I did think about putting on the list twice just to be a silly billy, Radar. Confidence is a must, cockiness is a plus, edginess is a rush, edges I like a rough. I was pretty bitter about this song for a while. The track was on both the Blackout and Circus albums, then released as a single during the Circus era. That's always really pissed me off because I love Blackout, but that album was released during Britney's infamous breakdown period in 2007. Circus was released a year later, and while it is a perfectly fine album on its own, its primary function really was to re-establish Britney's good girl image and distance her from the darker appeal of her most recent work. Even if you look at the cover photos for each album, Blackout is the only cover of Britney's to feature dark hair instead of her standard blonde, and the whole look of the album is darker than Britney's ever done. When you look at the next album, Circus, its cover very much seems like an attempted correction of that aesthetic. She's blonde again, she's wearing white, even the look on her face and the placement of the camera slightly above her is reminiscent of the sweet girl next door Britney of the Baby One More Time era. I don't know if, without all the problems in Britney's personal life, Britney planned on promoting Blackout more, but they ended that era really quickly once the conservatorship was put into place, with the exception of one animated video for Break the Ice. Radar was contractually obligated to be the fourth single for Blackout, so when they ended that era, they put Radar onto Circus and released it as a single there. My whole thing with Radar really is that they could have just let Britney promote Blackout after the conservatorship and Radar could have been a single off of that like it was meant to be. Instead, they just repurposed the song and put it onto a new record. Maybe Britney didn't want to continue Blackout promo and was ready to move on to a new project, but I kind of doubt that given the fact that there wound up being more songs from Blackout on the Circus Tour than there were Circus songs. 
And why was Britney starting a whole new era for her career anyway when she had just been deemed incapacitated in regards to just regular adult life? But this is the problem with the conservatorship as a whole, where the priorities seem to be more on what's good for Britney's career and her image rather than what Britney actually wants or what is good for her as a human being. Maybe it isn't fair to take out all my rage on radar though, since the song is still my favorite part of the circus tour set list. Britney just looks so happy every time she performed it, and I can't hate on it for that reason alone. Then at number 55, Inside Out, 54, Mood Ring, 53, Lace and Leather, and 52, Ooh Ooh Baby. On the surface, Ooh Ooh Baby is a very sexual sounding song. I mean, literally, the lyrics in the post-chorus are you're filling me up with your love, which evokes a certain image for me. But Cara Diaguardi, one of the song's co-writers, has said that the track was inspired by Britney's relationship to her then-infant child, saying, I would look at the two of them, the way they looked at each other, and the way she would hold the baby. It kind of struck me as interesting. At times it'd be about a kid, at times it'd be about a lover. That might sound weird, and I wouldn't blame you for finding the lyrics uncomfortable in that sense, but it speaks to the complexity of Britney's identity. Blackout, the album the song comes from, is largely a dance record with lyrics about sex and partying and finding a dude that isn't K-fed, but within it you can still find other themes, including explorations of Britney's life post-divorce, and on Ooh Ooh Baby, even amongst the sexual subtext, her devotion to her children as a mother. When I called Blackout her most personal album earlier, I did so because more than any album she's ever released, Blackout is the one that allows her to be a multi-dimensional human being. Then at 51, Hold It Against Me, I could go on for a long time about how much this song soundtracks one of Britney's greatest music videos, but I shan't today, mostly because I'm about to go into a longer rant about the next track. Number 50, Chaotic. There's too much of this noise, boy, let's get a seat, cause you can talk sweet to me. Of course, you can't really listen to this song without associating it with the reality show it was the theme to, Britney and Kevin Chaotic. On one hand, yes, the show was a horrible career move on Britney's part and not very well produced. It was called Career Suicide by many critics at the time. On the other hand, Though it's been brushed off as vapid and self-obsessed, it does provide a surprisingly deep look into Britney's mindset during the time it was produced. It's maybe one of the most real reality shows of all time. There is no script, there are no plots, there's no real gimmick. It's literally just Britney taking a handheld camera and videotaping her life even in the most inconsequential of moments. They look like boobs, but they're not. They're my knees. <laughs> They're my knees. <laughs> yes, it is dumb, and yes, you will have to sit through way too much of K-Fed and Britney making out, 
But if you've ever wondered why Britney Spears would settle for someone like Kevin Federline, go ahead and watch Britney and Kevin Chaotic. If it reveals anything, it's Britney's overwhelming loneliness. Before Kevin comes into the first episode, it's just footage of Britney asking the people that work for her random questions or admiring the features of her hotel suite. Even the title Chaotic can help you understand what Britney was probably looking for when she hooked up with KFED. Her life up until that point had been extremely controlled. She was releasing album after album, going on tour after tour, promoting different products, starring in a movie. There really wasn't much time for Britney to let loose. And then Kevin comes around and brings a little more chaos into Britney's life, something she was likely craving. As far as the song itself goes, Chaotic is great. It's fun, it's catchy, Britney also co-wrote the Zoe 101 theme song, which is similarly fantastic, so maybe she just has a thing for making theme songs. At number 49, Criminal, number 48, Sometimes, I feel like I should say something about that one since it's such a classic in Britney's discography, but it's just fine. Number 47, Lonely, number 46, My Prerogative. With this song again, we have Britney covering a track made well before the start of her career, and I have to imagine Britney was really drawn to the lyrical content, especially as her public image started to take more damage. There is an ongoing theme in Britney's music about not wanting to be controlled by other people, being overprotected, and wanting to break free and live however she wants, which of course makes her later conservatorship all the more upsetting. Then number 45, Showdown, 44, The Hookup, 43, Touch of My Hand, a masturbation anthem. And then next we have the two tracks which kicked off Britney's so-called comeback era from the Circus album. Number 42, the title track Circus, and number 41, the smash hit Womanizer. The whole comeback narrative for Britney has always been a little problematic. I mean, she made an album the year before Circus. She wasn't gone, and it's not like the quality of her music took a downward turn during that time. Blackout is still regarded by most critics as her best album. What people mean when they talk about Britney's 2008 comeback really is that she was smiling again. She didn't look angry, she didn't look upset, despite the fact that Britney Spears, especially in 2007 and 2008, had a lot to be angry and upset about. And she doesn't need to smile as dozens of paparazzi harass her on the street. We need to acknowledge that there is a pretty significant correlation between how much control other people have over Britney and how much the general public approves of her. In the beginning of her career when she was a literal child, she was America's sweetheart. When she got older and started being able to make her own decisions and exert control over her own life, her public image got worse with each coming year. Her reputation only recovered once she was put under the conservatorship where she literally couldn't make her own basic decisions anymore and seems to have been heavily censored. What was it we were looking for with Britney's comeback? Did we really want her to get better? To take some time to recover after all the pain of 2007? 
Or did we want her to record some new radio-friendly hits, get back onto stage, and smile for us like nothing was ever wrong? At least they were catchy songs. Then number 40, Change Your Mind, No Seas Cortez. And then number 39, Liar. Some people claim this song is about Justin Timberlake and the quote-unquote lies he spread about Britney after their breakup in the 2000s. I'm not totally sure about that since this song was released a good decade after they split and Britney has had many more upsetting breakups since then. I don't know if she's even still thinking about Justin Timberlake after all this time. Unlike him, who will be profiting off of her name for the rest of his life. I'd like to think that, at first, he'll date a popular female singer. <laughs> Publicly, they'll claim to be virgins, but privately, he hid it. I'd like to have a discussion with everyone in that audience who cheered. But in 2018, Justin did release an autobiography that nobody read or asked for called Hindsight and All the Things I Can't See in Front of Me, in which he apparently discussed the making of Crimea River and alludes to his breakup with Britney. At least that's what I've heard, I obviously didn't read the book, and neither did you. Now that came out in 2018, while Liar was released on Glory in 2016, so two years earlier, but, and this is my own personal theory, I don't know anything for a fact, it's possible to me that Britney was informed about the book from mutual friends or other people in the industry, heard that Justin wrote about her in it, and decided that this was the time to finally speak her truth on what happened with their breakup. You may recall, when Britney and Justin broke up, Justin wrote a song called Cry Me a River about an ex-girlfriend that cheated on him but wanted him back. If everyone didn't already think the song was about Britney, he put a Britney lookalike in the video, then basically went around slut-shaming her and bragging about how he took her virginity. More on that next episode. Crimea River is possibly THE reason that Justin Timberlake's solo career took off, making Britney the reason for his success. During all this, Britney remained pretty quiet, declining to discuss the details of their breakup publicly, her reputation was taking hit after hit while the man responsible for her embarrassment was never made to take responsibility for his actions and continued to flourish professionally, but so goes the career of Justin Timberlake. A lot of people see Britney's song every time as a response to their breakup, but there was another track written by Britney that explored some of the angrier thoughts Britney had on the situation. Look Who's Talking was a song written for what's now known as Britney's lost album, The Original Doll. Songwriter Angela Hunt worked on the track with Britney and confirmed to BuzzFeed that it was in fact about Justin Timberlake saying, The song was totally about him. It was all, let's not put it all out there. She was like, he'll know what we mean, but the rest of the world won't. The song was never released by Britney, but it was recorded by Korean artist BOA, and the Britney version leaked later in 2012. The irony is that even though the song is called Look Who's Talking and seems to be a direct pushback on the fact that Justin was talking about their breakup in every interview while Britney was trying to keep things on the down low, 
This song was never released and Britney never got to publicly speak her mind on the issue. So fast forward to 2016, if my theory is correct that Britney knew about Justin's hindsight book, she may have seen this as her opportunity to finally release her own diss track. Here's the first two lines of the song. Tall tale, such a damn shame. Hindsight, I can see it all so plain. Hindsight, you say? Maybe that's a total coincidence, or maybe she was informed on the planned title for the book. I have no idea. A few lines down, though. Left, right, nowhere to turn. Collecting the ash from the bridges you burn. Possibly a reference to the lyrics in Crimea River, the bridges were burned, now it's your turn to cry. Liar overall also contains a beat that's somewhat similar to Crimea River, but the most damning piece of evidence is, of course, the chorus. Just something to think about. I don't know. We're on our last handful of tracks though, so let's just keep going. Number 38, Just Like Me, 37, Don't Go Knocking On My Door, 36, Man On The Moon, 35, If I'm Dancing. I've seen a lot of people hating on this song and I won't stand for it. This is Weirdney at her peak. Fuck all of you. I'm just kidding, I love you. And then number 34, a song I can't believe actually exists and we were lucky enough to receive in 2016, What You Need. mess that was Britney Jean, where they obviously just wanted to make an album to promote the new residency and didn't even bother to put Britney's voice on every track, we got this masterpiece. On an album where Britney really seemed to take back creative control and every track felt deliberate. Like she really, really wanted to make a good record, not just a product for her team to sell or use to promote something else. Vocally, she is so present on Glory, and you see that the most on what you need. Like, to go from an album that's 60% not your voice, and then release a song like this? Miracles can happen, y'all. See, with both Britney Jean and Femme Fatale, there was sort of a lingering question hanging over Britney's fans, wondering, does she even want to be a singer anymore? Glory was the first indication fans had since like 2010 that yes, she does at least sometimes enjoy her job. I know I said that Copure Electrique, I think I'm butchering that every time I say it, makes sense as the closing track, but What You Need is technically the last song on the standard edition. And I do think it's nice that if you bought that version, the entire album ends with Britney saying, that was fun. It completes the experience of the album. Finally, Britney is having fun again. Then number 33. If you seek Amy. Shout out to that Megyn Kelly shade in the video. And 32 Slumber Party, the music video for which is where Britney met her current man, so we love that. And then the final track we'll hit today. 
the grand finale, number 31, Get Back. I wish I actually had something to say about it. It's the grand finale, but I'm all out of commentary. Just go listen to it. It's a good song. And then come back next week for part three, the top 30 Britney songs ever, according to me, at least. But who else would you trust for a task such as this? Alright, see you next week. Bye!